Well, good morning to each and every one. At the outset, I would, uh, I'd like to say on behalf of Allison and Laura and myself, how, how wonderful it is to have been here only 11 days and yet in many respects feel like uh, we're home. I think that is a, a testimony to you. Uh, we certainly thank you for your, your warm welcome, uh, the many meals which we've taken advantage of, I think, and, uh, and your many other helps in uh, assisting us as we've settled and uh, adjusted so quickly to life here in, in Glen Rose. Um, we're excited to be here. Uh, we're excited to be a part of Grace Community Church, and we look forward to see what the Lord will do in the coming years as we minister and, and serve together. As far as Sundays are concerned, uh, Sunday sermons, uh, I think I'm just going to pick up right where Joe left off. If I'm not mistaken, Joe led you all the way through to the end of John chapter 5. And I want to pick up more or less where he left off, uh, beginning in John chapter 6. If uh, you received a bulletin on the way in, perhaps you've already noticed the insert, uh, the gospel according to John. I thought it would be appropriate this morning to insert a little outline of the book. I don't doubt that you probably have seen outlines before. Joe perhaps gave you some sort of structure or outline as he initiated this series of studies. But I thought it would be worthwhile just to put something in to remind us of uh, John's gospel in its entirety. Uh, its structure and why John wrote this book. And where he's going in this book, I don't want to take a lot of time on this. Let me just draw your attention, first of all, to the author. Uh, it may have struck you as odd that John is actually never mentioned in this book, but there's good historical reasons for accepting him as the author. Uh, three very interesting characteristics that John does mention of himself. He's loved by Christ. He's a disciple of Christ. He's a witness to Christ. Three descriptions that hold true of every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the purpose of this book, it's summed up in chapter 20. I've written it there. Uh, verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's not merely evangelistic. That's not merely, hey, you're an unbeliever, it's time to become a believer so that you might have life in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. No, that's a daily experience, that we're growing in our relationship with God. We are growing in this life which God has given us, and we grow as we grow in our understanding and appreciation of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why this book has been written, that we might grow in faith and continue to increase in our faith in Christ. Now, the theme of the book is found in those two verses, which I just read. Five key themes, signs, faith, life, name, and the Son of God. Additional themes, key words throughout John's gospel account. Truth, light, love, testimony, and knowledge. And these are things which come up time and time again. And we will take note of as we make our way through to the end. The structure of the book, very simple. I suppose I could have included three or four pages here detailed structure, but I wanted to give you at least a bird's eye view 
of John's gospel. It begins with an introduction, a prologue. First 18 verses of chapter one in which John describes the word that is the son of God in four realms in eternity in creation in history and in the incarnation. And interestingly, the five major themes of chapter 20 verses 30 and 31 are also found in this opening section. And then second major section, Christ's public ministry begins in verse 19 of chapter one, goes all the way through to the end of chapter 12 in which we have the presentation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then we see something of his relationships, three key relationships. He interacts with a Jewish ruler, a Samaritan woman and a royal official, thereby demonstrating that God so loved the world. Christ's program is not restricted to the Jewish nation. God loves all without distinction, not merely the Jews, but Gentiles also. And Christ's ministry proves that. And John declared it. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, the Samaritans, after the conversion of the Samaritan woman, they declared it as well. We know that this one is the savior of the world, not restricted to the Jews, much more comprehensive in his mission and in what he sought to accomplish through his death, burial and resurrection. And then beginning at the start of chapter five, basically, John describes six Incidents and this increasing, growing opposition to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, which will inevitably culminate in his crucifixion at Calvary's cross. And in each of those six incidents, we have a different stress upon Christ, who is life. And in the third section, Christ's private ministry. And I'll give you a little more information concerning those chapters when in God's will we arrive there. And in the fourth section, Christ's passion. Obviously, we have in mind his death, his burial and his resurrection. And then fifthly, there's an epilogue, chapter 21, or the conclusion as John wraps up his gospel account. So that gives you that gives you a gist of John's gospel. Undoubtedly, you've seen something similar to that at some point of time. And as I've already said, perhaps Joe gave you an outline that he intended to follow all the way through. But uh, if I'm not mistaken, he made it through to the end of chapter five. That would be chapter 5, verse 47. And so we are to pick up in chapter 6, verse 1. That's what we're going to do next Sunday, next Lord's Day. We're going to pick it up with chapter 6, verse 1. This morning, what I want to do, however, is I want to take a look at these chapters, John chapters 5 through 12, this major section. And I want to consider with you its central message and simply ask ourselves the question, what is it that the Lord Jesus Christ seeks to convey In these chapters, what is it that John, as he records under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, the life and ministry and words of the Lord Jesus Christ, what is it that he intends to drive home? What is it primarily, preeminently, that we are to grasp, we're to take away, that we are to believe, that we are to hold on to in these chapters? And I think I've summarized it there for you on the handout, the outline. Under that title, Opposition, I'd like to take the time to read those six passages of Scripture for you. The first is found in John chapter 5, verse 26. And so you can turn in your Bibles with me. I'm just going to read these verses quickly. And just notice the emphasis of of each and what the Lord Jesus Christ is is stressing, is saying. So beginning in John chapter 5, verse 26, For as the Father has life in Himself, So he has granted the son also to have life in himself. He is the possessor 
of life. Look with me now at chapter six, verse thirty five. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so he is the bread of life. Look now at John chapter seven. Verse 38, you should be picking up on a theme as we make through our way through these verses. Whoever believes in me, says, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so the Lord Jesus is the water of life. Chapter eight, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of Life. And so he's the possessor of life. He's the bread of life, the water of life, the light of life. Look now at chapter 10, verse 28. Chapter 10, verse 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He is the giver of life. And finally, chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus said to her. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. He is the source of life. I think he wants us to get something. Talk about being repetitive. Talk about only being able to pluck on one note time and time again in this section. Repeatedly in these chapters, the Lord Jesus places this emphasis on life and stresses this fact, this eternal reality that in him is life, life eternal. Yes. Physical life, resurrection life. Yes. Spiritual life that we haven't even begun to live. Until we are brought into an intimate relationship and fellowship and union with the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what he wants us to absorb. That is what he wants us to get. And essentially, in these six incidents, he's basically saying the same thing in six different ways. In him is life. That's the central message. That's the key note. That is his primary objective, that we we would get this, we would grasp this, we would hold on to this, that in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, there is life. Now, related to that, related to that central message, there are five essential truths that the Lord Jesus brings out in these chapters again He repeats them time and time again. He takes us down these five roads. In other words, if we're if we're going to fully understand what it means to have life in Christ, we must grasp with our minds and we must embrace with our hearts these five truths. The first is this. Christ is life. In that he brings us into fellowship with God. Christ is life in that he brings us into fellowship with God. We can talk about eternal life and what it will be to live in the presence of God forever. 
We can talk about resurrection life and what it will be at that day yet future when our bodies are resurrected from the dead. We can talk about spiritual life and what it means to have the Spirit of God in us. When we talk about life, eternal, physical, spiritual, we have at its root, at its foundation, fellowship with God. He who is the origin of life. He who is the source of all life. To live is to have fellowship with God. To really live is to know God. It is to know that He is the dearest Father. It is to know He is the wisest guide, the strongest shield, the greatest good, the closest friend, the richest grace, the kindest comfort, the finest beauty, the deepest truth, and the sweetest love. Christ is Life, in that he brings us into fellowship with a great and glorious God. That's made abundantly clear in these chapters. The second truth, which is part and parcel of this key message, is as follows. Christ is life on the basis. Note these words very carefully. On the basis of his penal, that's one, substitutionary, that's two, Sacrifice. That's three. I make no apology for using words like that. Penal, substitutionary, sacrifice. If you aren't accustomed to that terminology, become accustomed to that terminology. That's the gospel. A penal, substitutionary, sacrifice. What do we mean by penal? We mean that when the Lord Jesus Christ died, He didn't merely die as an example. He didn't merely die to reveal God's wishy-washy love for everyone. No, when Christ died, he died because he was bearing a penalty. When Christ died, he was dying because God's law had been broken. God himself, a holy God, had been offended. And his justice had been offended. His holiness had been offended. And when the Lord Jesus Christ died, he died penally. In that he was bearing the wrath of Almighty God. Secondly, it's a a substitutionary Death, a substitutionary death, meaning that the Lord Jesus Christ didn't die because of his sin. He didn't die because he had broken God's law. No, God's word tells us that he became a curse for us. He became sin for us. That there at Calvary's cross, it was our sin that was reckoned to Christ or imputed, charged to Christ. And when the wrath of an angry God fell on the Lord Jesus Christ at Golgotha, at Calvary's cross, it did so because our sin was laid upon him. And he died there as our substitute. And the third word is sacrifice. That means that Christ's death was an offering. It was a sacrifice. He was presenting it to someone. That is, he was presenting it to God himself. Well, let me just say at the outset, let me say at the outset of my ministry here at Grace Community Church, that that is a truth of God willing, if he gives me one year, five years, ten years, fifteen, twenty years among you, that I will never let go of Christ's penal 
substitutionary sacrifice. It's fallen on hard days, hard times. There are many today who would talk about that bloody sacrifice at Golgotha as a, oh, a terrible incidence of cosmic child abuse. That no, 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 all we have going on at Calvary's cross is just an expression of how God feels about us. And a wonderful example of, of humility and selflessness and love. And oh, how we are to emulate that and how it should stir us. Absolute nonsense. What we have in, taking place at Calvary's cross is an act of judgment. Where the Lord Jesus Christ bore in full that penalty which we deserved. That is the only means to life. There is no fellowship with God. There is no basking in the radiance of God's glory. There is no communing with the Almighty. There is no knowing the one who is the dearest father, the truest guide, the sweetest love. There is no knowing the great triune God, the creator of all things, apart from Calvary's cross. And Christ makes that clear in these chapters. This is what drove people crazy. It drives people crazy today. And yet it is it is a truth that we must dare not apologize for. It is the greatest truth as it is revealed in God's word that life is there. Fellowship with God is there. But it is through the death, the, the crucifixion, that judgment which Christ bore at Calvary's cross. We live and we only live because he died. The third truth that comes out in these chapters is as follows. Christ is life only to those who believe in Him. Only to those who believe in Him. There are numerous metaphors. The Lord Jesus uses numerous metaphors in these chapters. He talks about coming to Him. About resting in Him. About abiding in Him. About eating His flesh. Drinking His blood. All of these different expressions, metaphors, analogies. And in each and every one, he is declaring exactly the same thing. We must believe in him. And when we talk about faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is going to become so evident in these chapters, when we talk about faith, we are not talking about a simple prayer. We are not talking about raising our hand. We are not talking about filling out some sort of card. We are not talking about making some sort of decision. We are talking about our souls resting in Christ. We are talking about believing in Christ. We are talking about acknowledging, yes, that the Lord Jesus is the Son of God. That Yes, the Lord Jesus Christ died at Calvary's cross for me. Yes, there is nothing I can do to merit or earn God's favor. There is absolutely nothing I can do to please God. As a matter of fact, I've never done anything in my life that pleased God at all. And if given a million years, I could never do one solitary thing that is good in God's sight. I need a Savior. And it is trusting in the Lord Jesus. It is resting in the Lord Jesus. It is believing that the Lord Jesus bore my penalty in full. And that when I believe it is the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ that is then reckoned, imputed to me. 
And when I believe that, my life cannot stay the same. I don't say a simple prayer and then go on living how I always lived. That's not faith. That's just simply mental assent. Remember what James says, the devils believe. Mental assent and they tremble. What good does it do them? Absolutely nothing. Saving faith is life transforming faith. Saving faith is faith that bears fruit. Saving faith is a faith that shows itself in a transformed life and a pursuit of godliness, a pursuit of Christ and a love of God and his word. That's made perfectly clear in chapters five through twelve. We can try to deny it. We can try to make people feel good about themselves by trying to water it down, but we would be carrying out. We'd be guilty of a terrible misjustice. Christ makes it so clear in these chapters that to believe, yes, is to agree with everything the word says about him and his finished work at the cross. To believe, yes, is to take it to heart and to believe is to have the will transformed, whereby we make a hundred and eighty degree change in life and there is repentance. And then there is a life lived in keeping with repentance. And the fourth truth that is so key to this central message in him is life is as follows. Man refuses to come to Christ that he may have life. Let me repeat the first three for you. Christ is life in that he brings us into fellowship with God. Christ is life on the basis of his penal substitutionary sacrifice. Christ is life. Only to those who believe in him. And the fourth truth. Man refuses to come to Christ. That he may have life. I didn't make that up. You can turn to chapter 5. And you can read verse 40. And I've just extracted those words directly from that verse. You see again, John makes it clear. As he records the words of Christ in these chapters. That man has a fundamental, basic problem that he cannot escape. He is dead in his trespasses and sins. He has no natural affection for God. He takes no natural delight or pleasure in God. And if man has it his way, he will run and he will run repeatedly from God. It is his sin, it is his sin which causes him to refuse, which makes him unwilling to come to Christ that he may have life. Why is it so? How is it that sin has so skewed man's understanding and his concept of reality? I've given this a lot of thought. I could go on and on about this, but let me just break it down for you in three phrases. Three truths as to why it is that sin makes it makes it impossible for man to come to Christ that he may have life. The first is this man's soul is eternal. But sin causes man to seek happiness in the temporal, the here and now. Man has has such a a pure, a, a poor concept of eternity. Uh, of, of the relationship between the present and the future, the here and now and eternity. And man, because of his sin, finds himself 
living for, for the here and now, the present. And secondly, the soul is spiritual. Man's soul is spiritual. But sin causes man to seek happiness in the material. He denies that a spiritual component of his being, of his existence. And he looks for meaning. He seeks for fulfillment in things, in work, success, in pleasure, in wealth, in materialism, things. Seeking to define himself, seeking to extract meaning, daring to to find the, the big answers to the big questions of life in the realm of the material. Thirdly, man's soul is exceptional, made in the very image of God. But sin causes man to seek happiness in the trivial, the absolute moronic at times. We are wired to worship God. We are designed to fellowship with one who is infinite. We are created to delight in the one who is eternal, immortal, invisible. And more often than not, we find ourselves seeking happiness and meaning and satisfaction in that which is absolutely irrelevant, inconsequential, and dare I say entirely trivial. Man has by nature a skewed concept of reality. Sin has wreaked havoc upon the mind and the heart and the will of man. Whereby rather than seeing that every yearning, every longing of his soul can be satisfied in God, he rather runs to the creature and seeks to fill that void with this, that and everything. It's, it, it's extremely prevalent today. It's extremely prevalent in the society in which we live, in the nation in which we find ourselves, in a day and age in which the philosophy, the mantra of the day is materialism. It is this fact that all, all that exists, all that is real, is here and now the material. There is this denial of the eternal. There is this denial even of the soul. And man finds himself struggling for meaning. R.C. Sproul expresses it as follows. According to the thinking of the day, man is a cosmic accident. He emerges from the slime by chance. He's a grown-up germ. He's moving inexorably toward annihilation. He lives his life between two poles of meaninglessness. He comes from nothing. He goes to nothing. His origin is meaningless. His destiny is meaningless. That is the society in the day and age in which we live. David Wells, who teaches, and he's at Gordon Cromwell University, builds on this and he writes, listen carefully to this, it's staggering. He says, the American way of life may be the envy of the world. It's gadgets and accoutrements sought after and emulated. But the American version of happiness, it turns out, is quite lethal. America is a violent and disturbed country. I was shocked when I read this. Its teenagers have the highest suicide rate in the world. 1991, more teenage boys died from gunshot wounds 
than from all natural causes combined. It leads the world in the consumption of drugs, legal and illegal, in addictions of various kinds, in divorce, in the incidence of depressive illness, and in the marketing of a vast range of therapies to counteract these problems. All of which points to a vast underlying unhappiness. How is that possible? North America, greatest place to live in the world, right? Canada, the U.S., wealthiest nations in the world. Prosperity, personal peace and affluence. And yet we are perhaps among the least happy people in the world. How is that possible? It's possible because we have a skewed sense of reality. The blinders are on. And because of sin, man seeks happiness in the temporal, but his soul is eternal. Seeks happiness in the material, but his soul is spiritual. He seeks happiness in the trivial, the mundane. Yet his soul is exceptional, created in the very image of God. Man refuses to come to Christ that he may have life. He will try everything and anything. Anything goes before he will turn to the lover of his soul. And the only one in which true fulfillment and meaning and satisfaction, the one in whom true life is found, God himself. Through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That brings us to the fifth truth. Part of the central message in this section. It's as follows. Christ must impart life. Let me read the five for you again so that you catch the thought flow. Christ is life in that he brings us into fellowship with God. Christ is life on the basis of his penal substitutionary sacrifice. Christ is life to those who believe in Him. Man refuses to come to Christ that he may have life. And fifthly, Christ must impart life. We read the verse already. Let me read it again for you. John chapter 5, verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. And there we have the sovereign grace of God, do we not? That apart from a working of the Holy Spirit, apart from a renovation of our minds, the regeneration of our hearts and the renewal of our wills, there we languish dead in our trespasses and sins. But to God be the glory. By His great grace, through the Holy Spirit, He imparts life. He gives life so that we see what we never saw before. You think back on it. Some of you converted later in life. And I'm sure a question you repeatedly ask yourself is, before I was saved, how could I have been so blind? How could I have been so stupid, dare I say it? When the Spirit of God works, works the light goes on. 
The heart then embraces these truths. The will follows. And there is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is repentance. And there is a turning from sin. And the soul cleaves to Christ. And through Christ finds that satisfaction which is found in God alone. Let me ask you this morning. And let me put it as plainly as I can. State it as clearly as I am able. Have you ever been convinced that your happiness is only found in God? Have you ever been convinced of that? Have you ever been convinced that true life is only found in God? Years ago, 15 maybe, I was working for a relief and development organization, traveled to the country of Haiti, Arrived in Port-au-Prince, traveled by Land Rover as far as the road would go. It just ended. And then I got on a mule and rode for two hours on the back of this mule. Then the terrain was too tough. I had to walk the last two hours into this little village in the hills called Bois-Jali. And there I was surveying the springs because we were planning this project to cap these springs and build a couple of wells and a couple of schools. And so I did my work. Started a walk back down. After about an hour, realized I hadn't brought any water with me for the journey back down the hill. Over 100 degrees. Not a stitch of shade. No clouds in the sky. And I made my way down the back of that hill. First of all, two hours on foot. And then two hours on the back of a mule. Finally arriving back at the Land Rover. I ask you, what was on my mind at that moment? What is it that I wanted more than anything else? What what is it I was craving for at that moment? I couldn't have cared less who won the World Series. Couldn't have cared less how the day had gone at the stock market. The latest Hollywood movie, furthest thing from my mind. Latest fashion, no, can't, can't, gave it a second thought. Latest gadget or gizmo, Couldn't have cared. All I wanted was that which I knew could satisfy my yearning. And all that could satisfy my yearning at that moment was water. That which could quench my thirsting. Have you ever been convinced that your happiness, that satisfaction, that meaning, that fulfillment, that life that you are yearning for deep down, have you ever been convinced it can only be found in one place? In God alone, through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the early church fathers expressed it so well, so beautifully. Lord, You have made our heart for You. And it will never rest until it comes to you. And when I shall wholly cleave to you, then my life will be life.